Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover in this audio, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 18, the entire chapter. I have entitled this, The New Covenant is Superior to the Old Covenant. Sounds like the book of Hebrews, or more particularly, the glory of the New Covenant is superior to the glory of the Old Covenant. Our context is this. Paul has talked about his change of plans not coming to the Corinthians as soon as he had planned. In chapter 2, he talks about triumph in Christ, a lot of good things about triumph, a lot of stuff like that, and also about comfort in Christ. And so now we begin in chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, Paul says, or do we need, like some, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Now, when Paul says that we beginning to commend ourselves again, he's referring to the place where he's had to establish his apostolic authority, and it sounded like he was bragging. He's referring to the last verse of the last chapter, 2 Corinthians 2.17. Paul says, For we are not like the many who market God's message for profit. On the contrary, we speak with sincerity in Christ as from God and before God. So Paul there is making a bold claim that he's not in it for money, and that sounds like he's bragging about himself or commending himself to the Corinthians again. And so Paul wants to foreclose that naughty thought. And he asked a rhetorical question. Hey, we beginning to brag about ourselves again? Uh-uh. Expected answer to the rhetorical question is no. And then he says, again, a little bit sarcastically, do we need like some letters of recommendation to you or from you? Like some, meaning like some false apostles. Back then, they had to go on letters of recommendation because they didn't know people. But hey, Paul doesn't need a letter of recommendation because the Corinthians knew him. He had established the church, so he didn't. He's saying, "Hey, we don't. I don't need a letter of recommendation, Corinthians." And he's just reminding them of that obvious fact. So when he says, "Or do we need?" It's another a, a letter of recommendation. It's another rhetorical question. The expected answer being, "No, Paul does not need a letter of recommendation." When he says "we," he's referring to the editorial "we." He's referring to himself, Paul. Paul has got to return to this theme of, hey, I'm not bragging. I'm just stating what I am in Christ, an apostle. He has to return to that theme in Second Corinthians 5.12, where Paul says this, We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to be proud of us, so that you may have a reply for those who take pride in the outward appearance rather than in the heart. In other words, he's saying, I'm giving you ammunition, talking about how I'm a true apostle, so that you can have ammunition against the false apostles, and I'm not doing this just to brag about myself, to commend myself, to you, Corinthians. Now, letters of recommendation were very standard back then, very often used because there were so many false teachers wandering around, as the NIV Study Bible points out. But the apostles, now this is an opinion by Adam Clark, which I don't agree with. Adam Clark says the apostles didn't use letters of recommendation because they could attest themselves by miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. Well, the problem with that is some apostles might need a Letter of recommendation, for example, in the early Middle Ages, seventh, was it 7th century, I think it was, or was it the 8th century, I can't remember, when Boniface, the great apostle to Germany, he was criticized by a lot of people because he never did miracles. And this was back in an age when people expected miracles, and there were a lot of false miracles as well as true ones, but Boniface didn't do them. And so he might lead a, need a letter of recommendation. Well, how about this? In Acts chapter 18, verse 27, when he, referring to Apollos, wanted to cross over to Achaia, to Greece, to Corinth, the brothers in Ephesus wrote to the disciples in Achaia, urging them to welcome him. Well, there's a letter of recommendation that Apollos had from the Ephesians to the Corinthians. So, I don't think Adam Clark's right about that. They Generally, you needed a letter of recommendation, but not Paul. Not because he did miracles, but because he knew the Corinthians, he had established their church. As Adam Clark puts it, quote, 
puts words in Paul's mouth, quote, Are we so destitute of ministerial abilities and divine influence that we need in order to be received in different churches to have letters of recommendation? Well, of course not. Not Paul the Apostle. He started the church. He knew them all. And, of course, he is pointing out that, hey, these false apostles did need a letter of recommendation. Then have you studied Bible points out that false teachers often obtained forged letters of recommendation. So those letters of recommendation might not have been any good that these false apostles were using. Paul didn't need letters at all. He didn't have to worry. You don't have to worry about false letters of recommendation with me, Paul says, because you know me. I started, you know my heart. I started your church. Second Corinthians verse 2, chapter 3. You yourselves are a letter written on our hearts, recognized and read by everyone. Now, when he talks about you Corinthians are our letter, he means a letter of recommendation, a letter that would legitimate him in the eyes of whoever is, is wondering. Paul doesn't need a, such a letter of recommendation because he has the Corinthian church. If somebody wants to say, are you an apostle Paul? Paul says, look at the Corinthian church. I started it. Now, that argument is obliterated a little bit. Or, or I should say obscured a little bit because the Corinthians were acting so horribly. But on the other hand, they had a functioning church there that at one time had functioned very properly. It just needed straightening out. And so Paul is being very complimentary toward the Corinthians and says, look, if people want to talk about me, well, I'm an apostle, I look at you, look at the church. You wouldn't be there except for me, so therefore I'm an apostle. Now he says that the Corinthian church, which is his letter of recommendation, is written on our, meaning his, Paul's heart, recognized and read by everyone. So everybody could see the Corinthian church and recognize that Paul has got a good letter of recommendation, the Corinthian church. Paul didn't need the usual written letter of recommendation. As the NMA study Bible points out, the Corinthians' transformed lives were proof of, a Paul's, of Paul's apostleship. Paul himself said in 1 Corinthians 9.1, at the end of the verse, Are you not my work in the Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Hey, yes, of course you are my work in the Lord, and everybody can see that. Now when he says... The letter is written on our hearts. That means that the Corinthians had the joy of knowing the Corinthians' conversion that was on his heart. Now, you can carry the metaphor a little far, too far, I think, and say, well, see, the letter of recommendation was, was written on Paul's heart, and then people would look at Paul's heart and say, oh, his love for the Corinthian church is there, therefore he's legitimated. I don't believe that's what it means because people questioning Paul's authority wouldn't be looking in his heart. They would be looking at the church itself. That's the letter. But Paul is just saying, incidentally, by the way, not only can people look at the at the church objectively and 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 see my recommendation, I'm just saying that you also, I'm telling you, Corinthians, also that you are in our hearts because we care for you, we love you. Not that he expects people to look in his hearts to justify his apostolship. He's just pointing out that hey, you're on our hearts. I care for you. He constantly mentions all the way through these two letters to the Corinthians how much he cares for them. In other words, when it says written on our hearts, that's for him personally. And then when it says recognized and read by everyone, that's everyone is looking at the Corinthian church, not at Paul's heart. Now, recognized by everyone, as Adam Barnes says, it means that the Corinthian church is what everyone knew and could see about, could see about Corinth, because Corinth was an exceedingly dissolute and abandoned place, as we know. And in, even in the midst of all that, moral corruption, there was a large number of Corinthians who had been converted and a church organized. And that church had been started by Paul and his companions, so there's the proof. That's the letter. We go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3. It is clear, Paul says, that you are Christ's letter produced by us, not written with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on stone tablets, but on tablets that are hearts of flesh. 
So once again, he's referring to the Corinthian church as a letter of recommendation. But here he says that they're Christ's letter of recommendation produced by us. So what he's saying is that letter was written, the i.e. the Corinthian church was produced, produced by Paul, but not just by Paul because that letter belongs to Christ. So it's Jesus writing a letter of recommendation. Paul is the worker that gets the letter of recommendation the church established, but it was Christ who owns that letter, who owns the church. And so now, if people want to question Paul's apostleship, they can say, well, now look over here. There's a church, and it belongs to Jesus. And now who's Jesus? He's the Son of God that you claim to represent, and Jesus established this church for Paul. Pretty good letter of recommendation. Now, this letter of recommendation, i.e. the Corinthian church, was not written with ink, as most letters are but the Spirit of the living God. In other words, the Holy Spirit working on the lives of the Corinthians, saving them, justifying them, and then sanctifying them, that was the letter of recommendation that Paul's talking about, much better than an ink letter. And the Corinthian letter, the church of Corinth, written by the Holy Spirit, that letter was not written on stone tablets. Now here he's referring to the law, probably because his opponents in the Corinthian church were Jewish legalists, and he's referring to the Mosaic law, and in fact, in this whole chapter, we're going to see the contrast between the Old Covenant, the Old Mosaic Law, and the New Covenant of Jesus. And so he gives us a preliminary, a preliminary hint at what, of that later contrast. He's saying, look, you weren't, the letter by the Holy Spirit was not written on stone tablets. It wasn't the law of Moses that established the church. It was the Holy Spirit of the living God. There's a contrast between law and spirit, law and spirit that you see all the way through Romans and Galatians and Second Corinthians. So this letter of the Corinthian church is not written on stone tablets, but on tablets that are hearts of flesh. In other words, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, wrote on the Corinthians' hearts, not on, not on tablets of stone like Moses did, like, like God did when he was dealing with Moses. But the, but the Corinthian church, Paul's letter of recommendation, the Corinthian church was written by the Holy Spirit. It belonged to Christ and was written by the Holy Spirit on their hearts, not letters, not A, B, C, D, E, F, G, but righteousness, peace, joy, long-suffering, and so forth written on their hearts, their hearts of flesh. So they would have a contrast there between stone, hard-hearted, and that's what law is, pretty hard on you. It shows you that you're a sinner, and hearts of flesh, meaning that you're a human being who's accepted and loved and forgiven by the Holy Spirit. So to summarize that verse, Paul's letter of recommendation, the Corinthian church, was better than anyone else's letter of recommendation because Jesus wrote that letter, he wrote, the letter of, of recommendation, i.e. the Corinthian church, because he created it. Now, as I said, Paul was getting ready to dump on the idea of sanctification by the law of Moses, that constant trouble the early church had with Judaizers. The law of Moses was written on stone. That's not as good as the Corinthian letter, which was written on Paul's heart, and not as good as the New Covenant written on Christians' hearts, which he's going to talk about in a little bit. Normal letter of recommendation is written with ink. Not as good as the Christian letter written with the Holy Spirit. So there's a contrast between what is written on stone, that's the law, or written on hearts. Not only on Paul's heart, but all, I mentioned Paul's heart, but also on the, on the Corinthians' hearts. So we got a different place where the letter is written, stone, law, hearts, new covenant. And with what instrument it's written, ink, law, letter of recommendation, and with a, a normal letter of recommendation, and as far as the Corinthian church is the Corinthian church's letter of recommendation. That letter of recommendation was written by the Holy Spirit. So there we have contrast between natural means, stone and, note, stone and ink versus new covenant concepts, heart and the Holy Spirit. Alfred Barnes 
speculates that Paul is here referring to legalistic Judaizers at Corinth. He says this, quote, Probably those who were false teachers among the Corinthians were Jews and had insisted much on the divine origin and permanency of the Mosaic institutions. Now, I don't think Barnes is referring to Reformed theologians who are constantly talking about law, 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 law all the time. Mosaic law, mosaic law, mosaic law, the law is the rule of life, the third use of the law, and on and on and on they go. Which rhetoric, by the way, completely contradicts the way Paul talks about the Mosaic law in Romans and in Galatians and in Hebrew. Well, not and the other and the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews and Paul says in Second Corinthians. You just don't have that same feeling of we got to keep the law, brothers. We got to keep the law. It's a rule of life for us. That's why I'm a New Covenant theology guy, not a Reformed Covenant theologian guy. Paul mentions in this verse, verse 3, he says, It is clear that you are Christ's letter. In other words, it's obvious, folks. No one could doubt Paul's apostleship when they look at the Corinthians. It's clear. Game over. When Paul is talking about writing on hearts as opposed to writing on stone, he has the idea from Ezekiel 36:26. God says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That's God talking to Israel. Israel's going to have a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone. As he, Paul's mentioned that contrast, you know, between stone and flesh. The Old Testament law is written on stone. That's a no-no. Not that it was bad for back then. It could show that people were sinners. But as far as getting people saved now, no, it's no good. But now I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. So the Corinthian church, Paul's letter of recommendation had Christ as the author. Paul was the pen. And the paper that was the letter was written on was the hearts of the Corinthians. Now, I will notice Paul shifts his metaphors a lot. When we get to the veil, I'll show you how he shifts the veil metaphor a good bit. But here he shifts the heart metaphor. Because in verse 2, Paul's heart was the paper where the Corinthian letter was written. And now the letter is written on the hearts of the Corinthians by the Holy Spirit. He just changes the metaphor a little bit. And that can be tricky if you try to make his metaphors consistent all the way through. A lot of times it doesn't make sense. I think about 1 Corinthians 12 and the metaphor of the Assyrians are speaking with tongues to unbelievers and then Paul carries that over to speaking in tongues in the church and and I think what in the world does speaking in tongues have to do with Assyrians it's because he just picked up an example from the Old Testament to apply to the New Testament situation but it didn't mean to carry over all the particulars from the Old Testament into the New so he shifts his metaphors he did here 2 Corinthians 3 verse 4 we have this kind of confidence toward God through Christ what kind of confidence well he mentions confidence in the last part of chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3, as Paul, as John Gill mentions. In the last part of chapter 2, he talked about everywhere he, the apostle went, or the church went, depends on how you take the we. Uh, we Christians or we apostles are spreading the aroma of Christ everywhere to the, li- to the living, those who are uh, for life, and to those who are dead, the aroma of death. And Paul says he was a a competent minister in those passages, 2 Corinthians 2, 16-17. To some we are an aroma of death leading to death, but to others an aroma of life leading to life. And who is competent for this? In other words, who's competent to, to, to do that? Well, he's saying, I'm competent to do it. Paul the Apostle is competent to do it. And he also says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5-6 through 6 in our last, well, coming up in our next couple of verses, he's going to say, it is not that we are competent in ourselves to consider anything is coming from ourselves, but our competence is from God. He has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit produces life. So he mentions competence several times here because people are accusing him of being incompetent, a lousy apostle, someone who should not be listened to in Corinth. And so Paul boasts, basically. He says, look, we have this kind of confidence, the confidence that we can be in a aroma of life leading to life. 
and death leading to death for those who don't believe and life leading to life to those who do believe. We have that confidence. But as soon as he says we have confidence, and notice what he's, the condition, the restriction he places on his confidence, we have this kind of confidence through Christ. We have this kind of confidence through Christ. He always does that to show that he's not boasting in his flesh, but he's boasting in the Lord. Second Corinthians 3, verse 5, It is not that we are confident in ourselves to consider anything is coming from ourselves, but our confidence is from God. Once again, not his fleshly confidence, but his confidence is from God. When he says we're, we are not confident in ourselves to consider anything is coming from ourselves, nothing comes from ourselves. What did Jesus say in John 15, the, the vine analogy? You need to be abiding in the vine so you can take the, the sap of life, the Holy Spirit that comes through the vine, who is Jesus, into your life so that you can grow fruit. And then Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Can't emphasize that enough. And Paul says it right here. We, we, he doesn't consider himself competent in anything. Anything that comes from himself, there's nothing that comes from himself, himself that makes him competent. His competence is from God. We go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. He has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit produces life. Now Paul is switching to his next topic, which is the contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant being the law of Moses, the New Covenant being the law of Christ, which is characterized by the Holy Spirit. Now, why does Paul switch here to talking about the New Covenant and the Old Covenant? Because... It might be because his Corinthian opponents were Judaizers, as the new NIV study Bible suggests, and the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary also suggests, and I think that's perfectly true, as there were people there, as were everywhere in the early church, trying to get the Christians back on the law. We've got to keep the law of Moses. We've got to keep the law of Moses. Maybe these people that were these Judaizers in Corinth maybe were associated with Peter. Remember, in chapter 1, the factions, I'm with Paul, I'm with Apollos, I'm with Cephas, Peter. Maybe that was the... Peter faction, the legalistic faction, and Paul's trying to fight against that by emphasizing the new covenant as opposed to the old. Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians 11.22, are they Hebrews? Now, who's the they? He's probably referring to his Judaizing opponents. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. He's saying, hey, you want to be Jewish? You ain't got nothing on me. I'm the Jew of Jews, but I'm preaching a new covenant, not the law of Moses. Let's talk about this idea of a better covenant, a new covenant. It's mentioned in Hebrews 7.22, so Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. The new covenant in Christ is better than the old covenant in Moses. Are you listening, Reformed people? Hebrews 8.8, but finding fault with his people, he says, Look, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. house of Israel and house of Judah there is, is typological for the church. New covenant in the church is a new covenant, and it's a better covenant. Hebrews 7 says it's a better covenant, and Hebrews 8 says the new covenant is a new covenant. And, of course, this is quoted, the, the verse in Hebrews 8, 8 is quoted from Jeremiah 33. I will read verse 31 there. Look, the days are coming, Jeremiah says. This is the Lord's declaration when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's quoted in Hebrews 8. And then we can see in Jeremiah 32, 39 through 40, I will give them one heart and one way so that for their good and for the good of their descendants after them, they will fear me always. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. So there's the new covenant, better covenant, everlasting covenant. I will never turn away from doing good to them. And I will put fear of me in their hearts so that they will never again turn from me. That's us, folks. That's the church. God's never going to turn away from doing good for his church. 
Now, going back to verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says this new covenant is not of the letter. What is he referring to? He's, he's referring to the Mosaic law written on tablets of stone. So he says the new covenant is not the old covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit produces life. Now, here we have a problem because this verse has been abused so many times. Paul is not saying here that the external literal sense of Scripture is deadly, but the inner spiritual, mystical sense of Scripture gives life. Oh, no, no, that's not at all what he's saying. And I'm telling you, I have, in my years in the charismatic movement, which unfortunately sometimes has been influenced by mystical tendencies, you would hear people say that. Oh, no, no, brother. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And then they have some kind of flaked out prophecy, which completely contradicts the Scripture. And they say, ah, yeah, but the script, the letter kills. Well, the letter says you're not supposed to commit adultery. Well, I just had a vision that I'm supposed to. I remember, uh, well, I won't mention that unfortunate circumstance, but there are a lot of people like that that'll do that. They'll just completely deny what the plain words of the Scripture say, including the New Covenant. Paul is not trying to say the New Covenant Scripture is not any good. He's trying to say that the New Covenant law of Christ, which consists of external commands, love one another as you have loved, as, as love one another, even as you have loved me, love God the Father with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. Bear one another's brother's burdens so that you fulfill the law of Christ. Not to mention all kinds of other things in the New Testament that, that says we're supposed to do that. We're not supposed to poo-poo those away and say, oh, but the Spirit led me to do something else. No, that's not what it means. What it means is, when it says the letter kills but the Spirit gives life, it means trying to keep the Mosaic law in the flesh kills. Oh, the Ten Commandments, I'm going to keep them. I'm going to worship God every day, and I'm not going to steal, and I'm not going to lie, and I'm not going to cheat. And people that do that, they end up lying, cheating, and stealing more than anybody that didn't. Because Paul says that in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, I think it is. If you're under the law, sin will have dominion over you. If you're under the law and not under grace, sin will have dominion over you. Sin produces, the law produces sin. It creates sin. It stirs it up. It makes it abound. That's what will kill you trying to keep the law without the Holy Spirit of Christ. Again, I don't know how in the world reformers can, who, old covenant theology people, covenant theology people, who are constantly talking about the law of Moses being a rule of life, the third use of the law, to make us sanctified and holy. Nonsense. You don't see that kind of rhetoric in the Scriptures anywhere. All you see is a contrast between the old and the new. You see it in Hebrews. You see it right here in Second Corinthians. I don't keep the law of Moses except to the extent that the law of Moses is repromulgated in the law of Christ. In the New Covenant, if Jesus or one of the apostles repeats a moral command out of the law of Moses, well, then I'll keep it. Because, not because it's the law of Moses, but because it's in the New Covenant, which binds me. I'm not antinomian, despite the pejorative smears of covenant theologians who are constantly calling New Covenant theologians people that without any evidence. Why does Paul say that the letter kills? Because the Old Testament law was not made to give life. It was made to slay the unrighteous person, as John Gill points out. Here's, a, this is actually, this is the verse I mentioned a minute ago without quoting it. Romans 7, 9, once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life. That's what the law does. It makes sin spring to life in your, in your heart. Now, if the letter kills, what does the Holy Spirit do? Holy Spirit produces life. Here's some Scriptures. Paul is just kind of giving a summary of Romans here in his letter to the Corinthians. Here's what Paul says about that, Romans 8, 2, because the Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. You want to sin, you want to die, follow Moses, you want to live in Christ Jesus, and want to be free, follow the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit's 
law of life. And again, that word law of life there is being used ironically to, to put it in opposition to Moses' law of sin and death. It's not really a law, in other words. Romans 8.10, Now if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. The Spirit is life. The Spirit is life. The Holy Spirit produces life. And the Holy Spirit produces righteousness in you because Christ is in you. Your flesh, your body is dead because of sin. You can't produce any good goodness from your own competence, from your own fleshly abilities, but the Holy Spirit can. He's alive because of righteousness. He's in you because of righteousness. We go to verse 7, chapter 3, 2 Corinthians. Now, if the ministry of death chiseled in letters on stones, that would be Moses, came, came with glory so that the Israelites were not able to look directly at Moses' face because of the glory from his face, a uh, fading glory. Now, we need to not get confused here. We, Paul is saying that the old covenant had glory. Didn't he finish, just finish saying that it was not as good as the new covenant? Yes, he did. It was, a letter that, it was a letter that produced death and not life. Yes, he did. But he didn't say it wasn't without glory because it did have glory. The Old Testament had glory because it was the glory of the law back then was to show that God is holy and people are sinners and that you're going to die because you can't match the glory of God. So, no, he's not saying that the Old Testament law didn't have glory. He's just saying the Old Testament law couldn't produce life. It could produce death, but it was a glorious death because it showed God was glorious and we are not. Paul is getting ready to use an affatory argument. He was saying, look, if the ministry of death had glory, how much more, how much more shall the ministry of life, ministry of the Holy Spirit, have glory? So he's getting ready to exalt the new covenant. But he's not doing that by saying the Old Testament didn't have any glory. He's just saying its glory was inferior to the glory of the new covenant. Now, one of the ways it was inferior is because of the fading glory that was on Moses' face. Now, here's what happened. Whenever Moses talked to God, God would infuse him with glory and his face would shine. The Israelites were scared to look at it. And so Moses said, okay, you're not going to listen to me because I got all this glory on my face. I'm going to put a veil on it so you're not going to see God's glory directly and so you can talk to me. We see this in Exodus 34, verses 29 through 30. As Moses descended from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands as he descended the mountains, he did not realize that the skin of his face shone as the result of his speaking with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face shone. They were afraid to come near him. So Moses covered up, covered up his face. Now, this glory that Moses had on his face was called a faded glory because he's walking down from the mountain and the glory was bright at first and as time goes on, it was getting less and it was fading. It was disappearing. Now, why does Paul mention that word fading? Well, I was confused about this for a long time. I would always try to say, well, we need to compare. Paul is trying to compare faded glory with the new covenant glory. And that's not what he's trying to do. He's trying to compare old covenant glory in general with new covenant glory the reason he mentions the fact that that old covenant glory was fading was because it showed that it was impermanent. It doesn't, doesn't last. It didn't last. It fades. The new covenant glory endures forever and ever and ever, world without end. That's his point about the fading glory. It's, it, it's temporal. It's not eternal. How do we know that? Well, we can drop down to verse 11 and give you a sneak preview here. For if what was fading away was glorious, that's the glory of the Old Testament Mosaic law. For if what was fading away was glorious, and it was, what endures will be even more glorious. So you see, there we have the contrast in that one verse, verse 11, 2 Corinthians 3. But the contrast between fading away, that's Moses, and what endures, that's the new covenant law of Christ. So that's the point of the fading glory. It's, the Old Testament is 
the Old Testament law was a temporary institution. Had its purpose. It was glorious when it was there, but it won't compare to the new covenant. Second Corinthians chapter three verses eight through nine. Now will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? And of course, that rhetorical question has an answer of yes. Of course, it will be more glorious because it's a ministry of the Spirit, not of the letter that kills. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, ministry of condemnation—that's Moses. And again, these people who are constantly talking about we need to follow the Moses as a rule of life. Paul calls that ministry, that Paul calls that law the ministry of condemnation. Exactly. Tell me where condemnation has to do with the rule of life. What they'll say is, well, yeah, Moses condemned sin so that we can live free. You know, they'll get around it. But I ask you, anything, anytime you read Paul, do, do Paul sound like Westminster Divine? When you read the, read the letters of Paul, do they sound anything like Presbyterian covenant theologians talking about covenant theology and about law, 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 and law is a rule of life? No, Paul does not. There's something wrong, Presbyterians. There's something wrong, Reformed Baptist 1689, London Baptist Confession lovers. There's something wrong. All right, so Paul says the ministry of condemnation had glory, but a fortiori, even more, the ministry of righteousness overflows with even more glory. And, of course, the ministry of righteousness is the new covenant ministry which produces righteousness in us by getting us born again. The righteousness that we have is both objective, that would be justification, declared righteous before God, and that ministry of righteousness is also subjective and personal, referring to sanctification as we become transformed from glory to glory. We go to verses 10 and 11 in Second Corinthians 3. In fact, what had been glorious, that's the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, in fact, what had been glorious is not glorious now by comparison. Again, it's argument. The new covenant is now more glorious by comparison. It's not glorious now by comparison because of the glory that surpasses it. He doesn't mean that absolutely it wasn't glorious, but by comparison is not glorious when you compare it to the new covenant. It's like you take a flashlight, you look at the flashlight, point it in your eyes, it's pretty bright, isn't it? You put, but then you put it out in, in the sun and shine it at the sun, and guess what? That flashlight is just as dull as it can be, just as dim as it can be. Verse 11, for if what was fading away was glorious, that would be the Old Testament Mosaic law, It was if it was glorious, that impermanent institution, that impermanent law, it's fading away. If that, if that was glorious, what endures will be even more glorious. This is, again, our fortiori. Even more so shall that which endures the new covenant law be glorious. Now, notice that Paul says here that the old covenant law is not glorious now. What had been glorious, that's the law of Moses, is not glorious now. Then why, Reformed covenant theologians, do you constantly glorify the law of Moses? And by not talking about it, you dim the glory of the new covenant law. Why do you do that? Verse 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness. Therefore, what is that therefore? Because Paul was the minister of such a glorious new covenant. Remember he said in the previous verse that he was competent as a minister of the, of the new covenant. And so since he has such a hope, a hope of future glory, as a, the future glory of the new covenant, as opposed to the fading glory of the old covenant, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we use great boldness. And you've got to, because of all the stuff that Paul went through, all the persecutions, the beatings, the shipwrecks, the trials before hostile magistrates, the stonings, the screaming and hollering at him done by people who were slandering him, you've got to have boldness. And because he had hope in the new covenant and its glory, and its glory that's why he was so bold. Now, here where the Homer Christian Study Bible says Paul uses great boldness, we, the editorial wheel again, we, Paul, use great boldness. The KGV has plainness of speech. 
I don't know the best way to translate it, that is, but Adam Clark says of the KGV translations, quote, well, he says that the speech, that his speech will, quote, differ greatly from the Jewish doctors and from the Gentile philosophers who affect obscurity and endeavor by figures, metaphors, and allegories to hide everything from the vulgar. And that is the absolute truth. I've read enough philosophy to know that they just love getting up there and spinning their little webs of confusion and, and to contort their minds in all kind of pretzel-shaped configurations, which the average person, i.e. me, cannot understand. And, heck, I'm a nerd. I think about the average person. That's one thing about Christianity. Perspicacious, is that the word they use? Anybody, even the innocent plowman who is plowing a field and finds a Bible cast aside in the field, picks it up, read it, read and reads it, he can understand it well enough for his salvation. You can't say that about philosophers. Philosophers constantly segregate themselves from the rest of mankind and say, well, to hell with them, you know. They're just, they're just a bunch of hoi polloi. We don't care about them, but we, we are seeking for the truth. I'm a little bit sensitive about that because I spent all my life in academia and I've been inundated with this type of people. People think they know everything and they know absolutely nothing. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13. We are not like Moses. We Christians are we apostles or we Paul, whoever are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the Israelites could not stare at the end of what was fading away. Right, we've already mentioned Moses' veil. We've already mentioned that he would do that to keep the Israelites from looking at him because he would look at God directly, and then his face would shine. Then when he come down, the, the people then in the Old Covenant couldn't look at their mediator's face. Too glorious for them. And what, where we're going with this is, if if the Old Testament people could not, the Old Testament people could not look at their mediator's face because of that little bit of glory, that fading glory was there. But we in the New Covenant, we can look at our mediator's face, even though his glory is much bigger. Our mediator is Jesus, and we can look straight there with unveiled face because we're not like Moses, who had a veil over his face, so the Israelites could not stare at the end of what was fading away. The Israelites could not look at their mediator, but by golly, we are Christians, and we can look at our mediator. Now, Paul is saying here that Christians don't have a veil over our face. Now, people wrestle with the symbolism a little bit. In one way, we could say the gospel is veiled under the law. The law is dark and obscure in the business of life and salvation, as John Gill puts it. But now the veil is taken away. We can see the truths of salvation. And I think that's probably true. We go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14. But their minds were closed. And that's in the middle of the sentence. It's talking about the Israelites. Let me read verse 13. We are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the Israelites could not stare at the end of what was fading away. Verse 14. But there the Israelites' mind were closed. So Paul uses the veil, which was back in the Old Testament, the purpose of the veil was to keep Israelites from looking at that glory. They were scared to look at it. But Paul takes that, what happened, and he applies it here in the New Testament. and says, hey, that veil is, is doing another thing. It's keeping people from seeing the truth. That there's a veil over their minds. For to this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains. It is not lifted because it is set aside only in Christ. Now, we've got to notice here that Paul has shifted his veil analogy. In the Old Testament, the veil was veiling the law's fading glory. Veiling Moses' face, which had fading glory. In the New Testament, the veil covers the hearts of unbelieving Jews. So there's a shift in the metaphor, because Paul's thinking about veil, so he just switches over to the veil heart over the unbelieving Jews who kept them from believing the truths of the new covenant. We don't need to keep the the veil analogy consistent all the way from the Old Testament to the New Testament. You'll end up in confusion. Paul says to this day, that means the day he was writing, which was about 55 A.D., 
From Mount Sinai until Paul's times, the Jews continued to reject the gospel. That was Paul's heart. If you read Romans 11, see that that bothered him. He didn't like that his fellow, his brethren, his people, the Jewish people were rejecting Christ and rejecting him. He says to this day at the reading of the Old Covenant. When was the Old Covenant read? When was Moses read? In the synagogue. So in the synagogues, they sat there listening to the words of Moses, which could have led them to Christ if they had just understood Moses and the overall plan of God. But they sat there like deaf, dumb, and blind people with a veil over their eyes, not understanding the truth. Why did they not under truth? Because the veil know the truth because the veil was not lifted. Why was it not lifted? Because it is set aside only in Christ. That's the only way that any Jew or anybody can understand the plan of salvation. Christ has got to set aside the ignorance. And after dealing with a lot of people who just refuse to believe in Christ, they don't even want to look at the evidence. They don't want to even talk about it. They're closed minded. They have a veil over their over their minds. Second Corinthians three, verse fifteen, even to this day whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Again, we are talking about in the new covenant in Paul's day, the veil was over their hearts. In Moses' day, fourteen hundred years earlier, the veil was over Moses' face. But now in Paul's day, this day, the veil is over their hearts when Moses is read, so they can't understand. So the metaphor is shifted now. Of course this is talking about Moses being read in the Jewish synagogues. John Gill says the veil is a symbol is symbolic for blindness, ignorance of Christ, the gospel, Old Testament prophecies, the nature and use of the law. They're blind to all that. Jameson Fawcett Brown has an interesting idea. Perhaps this is an allusion to the talith, which is a veil worn in the synagogue by every worshiper and it hung over the breast of every worshiper in the synagogue. Now, if that was the case, then you would have a veil literally lying over their hearts, over their physical hearts as it was draped over their shoulder. It would be a physical re- uh, analogy, or actually be a physical reference, and Paul would be using that physical reference to make an analogy to the, spirit, to the spiritual truth that the Jews did not understand gospel truths. All right, so the Jews are now veiled. We go to verse 16, 2 Corinthians 3, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And that's how you know the veil of obscurity that keeps you from knowing the truth is removed. You look at Jesus face to face and you understand you don't have a veil over your face anymore. Now, this idea of a whenever a person turns to the Lord, it's a very interesting translation here. The translation issue here. In Homer Christian Study Bible, it's whenever a person turns to the Lord. But the King James has it whenever it turns to the Lord. Well, you think, well, what does it refer to? Well, referring back three verses earlier, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 13, we read this in the King James. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. Israel, drop down three verses to verse 16, but whenever it, i.e. Israel, turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now from that, many people, many commentators have traditionally said, see there, that proves there's going to be a mass conversion of the Jews at the end of time. Well, I hope that's true, but I don't think that verse proves it. The I don't think the I didn't check a bunch of the other modern translations besides the Holman Christian Study Bible, but I even just looking at the King James, it just seems such a stretch to say that Paul is talking about it. Israel will have the veil removed. I think he's talking about every individual person who has the veil removed gets to see Jesus. He's not just talking about Jewish people getting saved. He's talking about anybody that gets saved, in my humble opinion. But it's interesting how deep in the Christian consciousness, this idea uh, that it's when the Jews turn to the Lord, the veil is removed. For example, I've got Gill mentions it, Clark mentions it, Alfred Barnes affirms it and says that's what it means. Well, we go to verse 17, 2 Corinthians 3. 
Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now we have, again, a contrast between Moses and Jesus, the Lord. Moses, the law and the Spirit, the letter and the Spirit. And slavery and freedom, because there's freedom there in verse 17. Now when Paul is talking about the Spirit as opposed to the letter, he's referring back to 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, which we've already read. Let me read it again. He, God, has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. So what characterizes the new covenant which you and I are under? The Spirit, not the letter, not Moses, but the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. That's the New Testament, the Holy Spirit. For the letter kills, because that's what Moses did. He killed people because he said, hey, you can't live up to the law, and so you're going to die. For the letter kills, but the Spirit produces life. This is one of the many, many contrasts in the New Testament, especially in Paul, between law and Spirit. I did a a Bible study one time on that, just got a concordance and looked those two words up. I looked up law, spirit, life, and death, and the typical type of contrast. It's just amazing. Law is always hooked up with death, and the spirit is always linked up with life. Now, when Paul says there is freedom, what kind of freedom is he talking about? Of course, he's not talking about freedom to sin. He's talking about freedom from the, in the context we're talking about here, as the NIV study Bible points out, is freedom from the law. Freedom from having to try to keep the law of Moses with no power to do so. Not to mention the fact that huge portions of the law of Moses have absolutely nothing to do with a non-Jewish believer or with the person living in the present age or in Paul's age even. But anyway, there's freedom because you're not trying to keep the law in your own, your own flesh, fleshly power. You're free from sin, as Adam Clark says. You're free from sin's power, sin's guilt, of the guilt that's produced by sin. And you're free from the pollution that's produced by sin. You're free from all of that. Notice that Paul mentions here in verse 17 where the Spirit of the Lord is. That means the Lord, the Holy Spirit, belongs to Jesus. I really, that, I didn't say that. That doesn't sound right theologically. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. The Spirit of the Lord is. That's referring to the Holy Spirit. And it's the Spirit of Jesus which shows that the Spirit of Christ, that term, Spirit of Christ, and the Holy Spirit is used interchangeably, as the NIV Study Bible says. Let's look at some scriptures that show that. Romans 8, 9 through 10. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God lives in you. There's another contrast between flesh and Spirit. The Spirit of God lives in you. So there, the Spirit of God refers to the Holy Spirit. And it's said to be God's Holy Spirit. So God is linked up with the Holy Spirit. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, again, that's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is an equal person of the Trinity, equal with God, equal with Christ. Verse 10 in Romans 8, let me read that. Now if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. There again is the contrast between Holy Spirit and sin. Of course, sin is produced by the law. Galatians 2.20, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Well, if Christ is living in you, it's not the physical Jesus. It's obviously got to be the Holy Spirit. Acts 16, 6-7, they went through the regions of Phrygia and Galatia and were prevented by the Holy Spirit from speaking the message in Asia. When they came to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So the Holy Spirit kept them from speaking the message in Asia, and then they went to go into Bithynia, which is another province in the northwest of Anatolia there. They wanted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So we got the Holy Spirit keeping them from going to Asia, the Spirit of Jesus not allowing them to go in Bithynia. Well, guess what? Those are the two same, that's the same person, the Holy Spirit. It's also called the Spirit of Jesus. Now, so since the Holy Spirit is also the Spirit of Jesus, that 
leads us right into verse 18, 2 Corinthians 3. We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. That is from the Lord who is the Spirit. So I'll take the last part of the verse first. From the Lord who is the Spirit. You can't make a distinction as far as divine attributes between Jesus and the Holy Spirit because Jesus is the Holy Jesus and the Holy Spirit are both divine. They're both God. These are the kind of verses that the theologians will look at in the first 300 years of the church and they start thinking, well, you know, it doesn't sound like the Holy Spirit is a different role for Jesus, Jesus in another form. doesn't sound like the Holy Spirit is a whole different God and they would have to put all that together and they did a great job at the Council of Nicaea, of course. The Lord who is the Spirit, Jesus who is the Spirit. So we can say the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, or the Holy Spirit, synonymous, no problem. The Scripture makes no distinction. All right, so now we have a shifting of that veil metaphor again. Let me let me give you a summary of that. Three ways that Moses that Paul uses the veil metaphor. First use, he says Moses veils his fading glory in the old covenant. The point of that was to show that even though the Mosaic covenant was glorious, it doesn't compare in its glory to the new covenant. So and it was and it was fading glory, it was impermanent. So that's the first use of veil. Second use of veil. A veil covers a person's heart or Israel's heart so they can't understand. That's the second use of veil. Fading glory is veiled to show that, that the glory was fading in the Old Covenant. Second use is people's hearts are veiled so they can't understand. The third use of veil is that there's no veil over the Christian's face so that we, we can now see Jesus face to face. This, of course, is third use is in contrast to when Moses talked to the people. When Moses talked to the people, they were blocked from God's glory when they looked at Moses. But when Christians... When Moses, I should, let me say that again, when the people tried to talk to Moses, their mediator, they were blocked from seeing God's glory, even though they were looking at their mediator. They were looking at Moses, but they didn't see the glory of God. All they saw was a veil. But we Christians are not like that, because when we look at our mediator, Jesus Christ, we don't look at a veil that's hiding glory. We see the full glory of Jesus. That's nice. Now, what are we looking at when we look at our mediator? We're looking at the glory of the Lord. Jesus has glory. I just saw an article, a theological article, about somebody trying to define what glory was, and he gave 14 a- attributes of it. I just like to define it as the public characteristics of one's, the public display of one's excellent characteristics. Splendor, fame, reputation, however you want to put it. And that's what we look at when we look at Jesus. We see his glory. And it doesn't kill us like it would have killed the Old Testament people. We see his glory. We see the glory of the Lord. We see how wonderful Jesus is when we look at him straight, look at his face. But now notice, we're not looking at Jesus face to face. We're looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord. Oh, so now what we're doing is looking in a mirror. We see Jesus' face reflected in the mirror, and then we look in the mirror, and that's how the glory gets to us, not directly, but by way of a mirror, as opposed to the Old Testament believers. They didn't see a mirror. They just saw a veil that, that snuffed out the glory of God. We see a mirror, and of course a mirror reflects glory perfectly, so we'll see that glory easily. So the point of the metaphor is not lost. We get to see Jesus' glory directly without being veiled. I say directly, I should say we see Jesus' glory without a veil, hiding it. But we don't look at it directly, we look at it as in a mirror. Now what does that mean? Well now, people have speculated on this, this is my speculation, is that when you look at a mirror, you look at your own face. And what are you seeing there? You're seeing the face of a person who has Jesus within him, transforming him from glory to glory. You're getting to see the outworkings of Jesus' glory in your own life. And that's quite a privilege and quite a wonderful miracle, and that's why the gospel is good news. Other speculations of this, we 
it's so easy naturally to see our faces in the mirror. It's so easy, so obvious, so we obvi- so we can also easily see the privileges of the gospel of Christ or see Jesus very easily. Or Jameson, that was Adam Clark's idea. Jameson Foster Brown says the mirror reflects the glory of God in Christ, and so we see the glory of God in Christ in the mirror. But again, why can't you just look straight at Jesus and have to look at a mirror? I think the point that Paul's trying to make is we look at a mirror, and so we see the glory of Jesus as reflected in our own faces, in our own beings, as we watch him change us from our lousy, rotten, miserable, wretched, sinful state into the glorious light of a born-again child of God being glorified day by day by day, from glory to glory to glory, from one pleasant aroma to the next pleasant aroma, until we arrive at the time of our perfect glorification when we will see Jesus just as he is, either as he comes or when we go to him when we die. Either way, we're going to see him, and we're going to be fully glorified then. We will reflect his glory perfectly. Notice here in verse 18, Paul says we are being transformed into the same image, in the same image of God. Transformed means being sanctified. We're being transformed into the same image. That's the image of God, the image of Jesus. That's what our goal is. Jesus is the new Adam. We are the, we are part of the new Adam. Jesus is the head. We are the body. And that means that we're going to have that same reflected glory of Jesus when we get there. There is no end to the glory that we're going to show to the world. It's going to be an amazing thing because this world is a total mess the way it is now, as you know. But it's not going to be like that when the, when the church is unveiled before all of creation. And I can't wait, personally. Ladies and gentlemen, we are finished with 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In chapter 4, Paul is going to continue his talk about the new covenant, the glorious new covenant. He's going to talk about the light of the gospel. He's going to talk about treasures and jars of clay and so forth. That's the next audio. I hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 